think future churches will be empty of consumer Christians. And you might be like, Alex, what in the world is a consumer Christian? Is that a Christian with an online shopping addiction? Um, no, it's not. Consumer Christians see the church as an organization that they pay to provide them with religious goods and services instead of as a world-changing movement to join. In the words of Dallas Willard, some people who call themselves Christians are vampires, and that doesn't mean that they sparkle. It means that they... Thanks for at least the judgment. I mean, I'm trying. I'm doing terrible. I'm trying. Um, vampire Christians want only the blood of Jesus to keep them out of hell, but they want nothing to do with his life and his teachings. And I think Dallas Willard is right. You probably encountered, like me, some people who say, I'm a Christian, and they have so much peace and joy, you're like, I want to be like them. I want what they have. But if you're also like me, you probably met some people who say they're Christians, and they're literally the worst people you've ever met on earth. How can that be? Well, Dallas Willard says that there are some vampire Christians who have taken a little bit of Jesus, maybe just to stave off some fear of death. But they haven't actually become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of his way of life. Now, we know that we don't earn salvation by practicing Jesus' way of life. We don't earn it with works. We're 500 years post-Reformation at this point. I think it's a moot point. We can all agree that salvation is by grace through faith. I've often heard growing up churches quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You might even know it by memory or it will be familiar maybe when I even hear it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. I hear that quote a lot. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But I don't hear it quoted with verse 10 very often. 10 says, but we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us. You aren't saved by works, but you're saved for works. If your so-called salvation experience doesn't cause you to join the mission of Jesus in the world, you haven't experienced the salvation that he offers. Willard once again puts it like this. The greatest issue facing the world today, with all its heartbreaking needs and issues, is whether those who by profession or culture who identify as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of their human existence. For seven weeks now, we've been exploring the future of the North American church. I believe this moment in history is unique. It's a once-in-a-thousand-year shift in culture, and it's not just me who thinks that lots of writers and thinkers and philosophers agree. We're at a critical turning point in human history. You can look back, and there's some big defining moments where history turned, like the creation of the printing press. You know, there's these things that everything after that, the world was different, and we're at one of those points now. And if the church doesn't change, it will either succumb to culture, or I think if it changes, it can actually become a future church, something that thrives and survives in the future. At this moment, our greatest need is not political, it's not economic, it's not even emotional. Our greatest need is to become students of Jesus Christ, to become disciples, to learn how to live and love like Jesus. 
So that's what Dallas Willard thinks, and I think that's going to be essential to the future of the church. We have to have a Christianity that is worth something, and to have that, we have to have a Christianity that costs us something. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow them. In parable after parable, Jesus would tell these stories, and he says, my kingdom, being my student, being with me, is worth giving up everything that you currently have. And the people who gathered around him in the first century, the people who made up the first church, they thought that was true. It cost them family relationships, it cost them jobs, in some cases it cost them their lives. That's what we're going to talk about today. But somewhere in the DNA of how we do church in America, we've lost this early concept of Jesus is worth losing everything. We've introduced a cheap grace gospel that invites people to pray a prayer, but never conform to Jesus. You can attend church, but you never really have to love your neighbor or God forbid it. I think churches started this approach to Christianity in North America with noble intentions. They're like, we need to reach more people, so let's make the bar lower, let's make it simpler, let's get people in. But I think the opposite has actually happened. Instead of demanding total allegiance to Jesus, we've made it convenient to be adjacent to Jesus without ever really knowing him, obeying him, or loving him. We've designed our churches to serve the needs of hungry, consumeristic people instead of creating churches to serve Jesus and to carry out his vision to change the world. Um, good marketing is all about offering what you want, not inviting you to deny yourself. And I'm not against good marketing, but I think that Jesus wasn't calling us to offer things that people wanted, but was calling us to offer himself, and it's what people actually need. One of the best leadership principles I was ever taught, and I constantly try to remind myself of this, is it's better to have a few raving fans rather than a million people who are just okay with what you're doing. Brand managers for big companies will tell you this. Like, it's better to have a few raving fans who love your company than people who are just like, yeah, I'm okay with that brand. I mean, it's not great, it's not terrible, it's just okay. Like, okay isn't enough. And for too long, our churches have been built around attracting people who are just okay with Jesus instead of being built around passionate disciples if we're honest, the average North American church is centered around the people it wants to attract so it can take their money and build buildings and pay personalities. Mm. This is transactional Christianity, and it's so commonplace, I often don't even think twice about it. I'm just like, that's just how it is. Like, it doesn't even seem weird or wrong to me. We attend churches because the programs they provide serve us and our families. We pay the church for the goods and services provided. If another church begins to provide the same goods and services or better ones, we'll go there instead. That's consumer Christianity, and that won't exist in the future of the church if this is the critical changing point, this catalyst that I think it is that we're at in history. Most people aren't guided to church by the Holy Spirit, but by good marketing and beneficial products. But back to my original point, future churches, churches that will survive this pivotal moment of changing history, who will thrive in the future, will not have consumer Christians. See, you can build a crowd with consumer Christians, but you can't build a future church. Consumer Christians can only exist in a culture where there is a benefit to being labeled a Christian. 
As culture turns increasingly against Christianity, our churches will end being denominally engaged because there will be no benefit to them. But here's the thing, church was never supposed to be about how it benefits you, but about how you can join in Jesus' mission to better the world. Now, God forbid actual persecution does come to America. If it does, future churches will only gather those who are actually committed to Jesus enough to die for him. In the first century, why the church threw the world upside down was when Rome tried to crush them under their boot. There were people who said, no, I believe this thing so much, we're going to keep gathering, we're going to keep talking about Jesus, we're going to keep living this way, even if it costs us everything. Something interesting happens when the disciples of Jesus are being persecuted. Around the world, you know where Christianity is growing the fastest? In the places where it's most restricted and most persecuted. Isn't that interesting? Like, the more you try to uh, plant down on this and stop it, the places where it's most dangerous and possibly Christian, that's where it's going fastest. The se second century church father, Tertullian, famously said, the blood of martyrs is the the church. And we see that as we continue our exploration of the early church mindset that future churches should model in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 51. We're, we're picking up into a long, chapter-long sermon that Stephen, one of the deacons we were introduced to in chapter 6, has now been taken to court and is like, you are speaking this blasphemy about this Jesus fellow, and they're like, present your case. And he preaches this long, long sermon, and we're just coming in at the tail end. Um, he's not missing words here. Listen to what he says. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you did not keep it. When they heard these things, they were enraged. They gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen told the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, and they covered their ears and together rushed against him. I got a picture of a little kid. You know the other tone, like, clean up your toys. They're like, ah! How many times spiritually have I stopped up my ears because I didn't want to hear what somebody was trying to tell me when it was something I needed to hear? But I digress. Verse 58. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Now, he died. He was the first martyr. We'll notice in the New Testament a lot of times they'll say fell asleep because they believed so strongly that the resurrection that was going to happen, they saw death not as an end but as a cause because more life was coming. But Stephen is the first Christian martyr and the first of many. By 300 AD, some historians estimate as many as 2 million people were killed by the Roman Empire for embracing Jesus' way of life. But in the immortal words of that great philosopher, Princess Leia, 
the more you tighten your grip, not thinking, the lady's got five years in I think she's a great philosopher. She says a great thing. She has a great life. The more you tighten your grip, the more star systems slip through your fingers. By 320 AD, after killing 2 million people for being Christian, Christianity had become so pervasive that the Roman emperor himself converted. Now, we don't know if that was a true conversion or if he simply was like, there's so many Christians in this empire, it's better for me to side with them than to side against them. Either way, it's a testament to how wildly Christianity has spread. Today, it's estimated that every year, 100,000 people in our world die as a result of being Christian. For siding with Jesus. For saying that I'm for Jesus and I'm willing to lay down my life. Persecution has one of two effects when it comes to a culture and to a country. It either makes people think this isn't important enough for me to lose my life over, or it makes other people turn and look when people actually die for what they say they believe. Now, sometimes I see people argue that we're currently being persecuted in, in the United States as Christians. Um, that's pretty ridiculous. I think, honestly, it's mocking our Christian brothers and sisters who lay down their lives, 100,000 of them, around the world, when we call the minor inconveniences we currently face in this country persecution. It isn't persecution when the culture no longer gives preferential treatment to our Christian beliefs. I wish we still embraced Christian beliefs, but it's not persecution. There are Christians in Iran, in China, in Africa who are murdered or imprisoned, their lands and their businesses seized all without trial, all because they say Jesus is Lord or they show up at a gathering of people who say Jesus is Lord. I think we need some global perspective when it comes to persecution. Like, we're not being persecuted here. As culture turns against Christianity in the West, we will see less and less people casually, culturally calling themselves Christians. As soon as there is any real persecution, consumer Christianity will die instantly. Disciples are willing to die for Jesus. Consumer Christians will die out when death or persecution is the only cultural benefit Christianity can offer. Future churches will invest in disciples rather than consumer Christians. A single disciple produces more change than a thousand consumer Christians. Horizon may be small, but I would rather just be a small gathering of disciples rather than 10,000 consumer Christians gathered in a huge auditorium, chanting and clapping and playing at religion. 10,000 consumer Christians would give us a lot of money and make me feel really good. And they're all here to hear something I have to say. Oh man, that's awesome. They would give us a lot of money and allow us to do a lot of things that would impress other churches, but I don't think it would change our culture or our country or our See, a handful of spiritual disciples turned the world upside down in the first century. And I think a handful, handful of spiritual disciples can turn our city and our culture and our community upside down. I'd rather you be crazy about Jesus than there only be a few of us, than there be a whole bunch of us who are like, eh, Jesus is pretty good. You know, do something I do on the weekends. Um, if Jesus is really who he said he was, if he really offers abundant life to those who model how he lived and loved, then he's worth giving away everything 
for. He's worth committing ourselves fully to. I think a handful of disciples can change the course of the world because that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. I think that can happen again. A massive church filled with consumer Christians will ultimately change nothing. A church filled with consumer Christians models the culture. A church filled with even just a handful of disciples can move the culture. Just because a church is big, though, I'm not criticizing big churches, doesn't mean it's big, doesn't mean it isn't producing disciples. But what I find often in modern America is big churches start using attractional methods that naturally produce consumers because they're using methods that businesses and restaurants use. And so naturally they start to attract people who want the goods and services that they're advertising. They come because they're promised religious goods and services. Kyle Eidelman said it like this, what you win them with is what you win them to. And I think we want a lot of people to Christianity with promising them fringe benefits of Christianity instead of promising them the life of Christ. Mm. Now, I'm not criticizing other churches here. Um, as I started writing this, I was like, it sounds very critical. What I'm trying to critique is my own natural tendency to market to consumer Christians and want to attract consumer Christians. That's what I was trained to do as a minister. Gathering consumer Christians is a lot easier than making disciples. It's quicker. It's more satisfying. When I'm tired or frustrated or overwhelmed, it's a lot easier to see the quick, tangible benefits of attracting a crowd than it is to do the slow, hard work of making disciples. But Stephen, Stephen was a disciple. He saw the invitation to follow Jesus as come and die, not come and get. He believed that Jesus came back from the dead so strongly that he himself did not fear death. And we're going to see next week where Stephen's action sets off a ripple effect that impacts the entire world. One man willing to say Jesus is worth it changes the entire world. He believed that on the other side of death is even greater life. Now stoning, um, there are still some places in the Middle East where stoning happens today. Horribly graphic videos. You can go and see that have been captured. Uh, countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia have been uh, criticized for still practicing stoning in some cases. It was an ancient form of capital punishment in multiple cultures in the ancient world. Stones were abundant throughout the landscape of Israel, meaning that instantly a crowd of people could become judge, jury, and executioner if they could reach down and pick up a stone. Execution could happen anywhere. Now, most deeds deemed worthy of stoning were sexual in nature or focused around idolatry or practicing the sorcery of the demons. Jesus stopped the stoning in John 8, the woman's caught in adultery, um, and they, they don't have the man there at all, even though if they were following strict Jewish laws, they would have stoned them both. And instead, they set it up as a trap for Jesus, and that's where Jesus famously said, if you're without sin, cast the first stone, and they're all like, uh, and they just fell back away. But stonings happened way too frequently in the first century. If people were pissed off about something, they just started picking up stones and killing people. Now, getting pelted with rocks is a terrible way to die. Um, Darby's mom and our nephew was up to visit, and um, they were like, I want to go down and get a tour of Philadelphia. And so we got on one of those double-decker tour buses, you know what I'm talking about, downtown, and they ride around and they tell you the history of the city and interesting things. So we're driving through Philadelphia, 
And um, these kids come up once on the bus, picking up rocks and throwing them at us. We're on the second story, so it's just open. They're like, get out of Philly, you tourists! You know what, they're just coming up the right. I got hit in the neck, and I got hit in the stomach. And the tour guide's like, get away from your kids, stop this! And he's like, I'm so sorry, Philadelphia's not like this. Philadelphia's not like this. And like, all these tourists, you know, are putting their heads down and covering their heads. So they're just coming up the road. I was going to show you the video, and uh, Darby took a video of it. You can ask this game later. But, um, <laughs> getting hit by rocks is not fun. I got hit twice. Now, thankfully, I have some padding to kind of prevent, like, long-term damage. But I was like, give these kids whatever they want so they stop me from like, it hurts. And they were just picking up little pieces of concrete and sidewalk and throwing them at us. In the first century, these were full-grown adults picking up the biggest rocks that they could and throwing them with all their anger and their hate towards Stephen. I got hit by two little rocks, and I was like, give these kids whatever they want. I don't care. Throw money to them to make them stop hitting me with rocks. But Stephen was being pounded with rocks with the intention of killing him with brutal force. And he didn't turn from Jesus. Instead, he turned and looked up and said that he saw Jesus. And did you notice what he said? I would have been like, Jesus, rain down fire on these kids. Like, rain down fire on these people. Like, they're hitting me with rocks. What does Stephen say? Don't blow this sin against them. Forgive them. Just like Jesus, when he was nailed to a cross, did not look at us and say, humanity needs to die for this. Instead, he says, I die for humanity. Do not hold their sin against them. Now, in verse 58, there's this little mention that a young Pharisee was there overseeing the proceedings named Saul. Did you catch that? You're like, wow, thanks for that pointless little side fact, Luke. Like, why are you doing this? Luke is a master crafter of narrative. If you read the Gospel of Luke and then Acts, he knows where he's going with his story. And he mentions that Saul is here because Saul's about to become the main character for the remainder of the book of Acts. And this is the first time he comes up. After this, he's going to lead a horrible persecution of the Christians until he ends up having a profound encounter with Jesus and everything changes. And he goes on to change his name to Paul and write the majority of the New Testament and start churches that reach Gentiles. Would there have been a Paul if Stephen, when he was being stoned, was like, you know what? Jesus isn't worth it. Getting up on Sunday morning? No. Giving a little bit of my time or my money or talking about him, trying to live like him, it's too much. Dying for him? Absolutely not. And he just walked off? I don't know if there would have been a Paul if there hadn't been a Stephen willing to die for Jesus. See, Gentiles like you and I know about Jesus because Stephen was a disciple, not a consumer. And when things got hard, he didn't quit. He stayed faithful and true, and it cost him everything. And that passion shook a young Pharisee that ultimately became the greatest champion for the early church. See, all the money and the programs in the world wouldn't have reached Saul. If the first church in Jerusalem had been like, we have an amazing youth program, Saul would have been like, I don't care. I'm going to still kill you and put you in prison. You know, if they'd be like, we have really big names on our stage and we bring in like the best contemporary Christian band. So it would have been like, you're going to prison anyways. I don't care. What shook him was someone who believed so strongly in Jesus that they were willing to sacrifice everything for him. 
the best children's ministry or music or building or preaching would never be solved. There are people who are only convinced of the authenticity of Jesus by how his disciples handle suffering. See, I think future churches will offer more than shallow self-help messages and flashy programs. They will produce resilient disciples that are willing to suffer for their Savior. Our modern Western churches have been designed to be all about how to reduce church down in order to attract the lowest common denominator, the Christian who wants almost nothing to do with Christ. Future churches won't make that mistake. Future churches will be filled with skeptics and seekers and saints that are convinced that Jesus is worth dying for. The future church will always welcome the spiritually curious. Maybe you're watching online or you're here this morning and you're like, Hey, I'm not ready to be all in on you, but that's okay. There's a, there's a place to be a skeptic and a seeker and to be asking questions. But the future church won't endure Christians who say they believe this thing, but only want a little religion and not just Jesus. The people who say that they believe everything, but they don't obey anything that Jesus commanded. Um, there's this term in dating called DTR. Anybody know what DTR means? Nobody. Oh, define the relationship. <laughs> Did you ever have a defined relationship conversation? You're like dating somebody and you're like, we need to sit down. What is this? Like, is this going somewhere? Like, what is this defined relationship? Um, oftentimes, it is a woman who initiates the HR and the man reluctantly sits down and he's like, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess we'll boyfriend, girlfriend, we can follow that. Now, before dating, I dated some people um, and they were all terrible before dating. But, um, I remember sitting down with this one girl and I was like, can we just define the relationship? Like, what do you think this is? Where is this going? Um, I think a lot of us need to have a detail with Jesus. Is this just a fringe interest? A casual acquaintance? Are we disciples? Are we apprentices? Are we practitioners of Jesus' way of life? Stephen decided that he was all in on Jesus. Seekers, we're always going to do that, and we want to do that. 
but we're going to call consumer Christians to become disciples, students of how Jesus lived in love. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to take communion, and this is a great time to take a few minutes and have a DTR of Jesus. Just be like, where am I at with my relationship with Jesus? Now, skeptics, if you're a skeptic, you're watching online, you're here, or you're a speaker, you're always welcome here. And it's good to take time to check out the teachings of Jesus and not just jump in. Um, you need to check them out and see whether or not they are true. If they're not true, they're not to be followed. But I have found the way of Jesus to be true. But maybe it's time to move from skeptic or seeker and take a step towards becoming a student of Jesus. Uh, I think we all know the, the stages of a romantic relationship in a sitcom. Um, you guys remember The Office? I think I have a picture. Back up for just a minute The Office picture. Um, Remember Jim and Pam? <laughs> what if they had just for nine seasons just flirted with each other and never went in? You'd be like, Jim, what are you doing? Ask her out, you idiot. Like, at least go on a date. Like, we would have been so mad with that shit. <laughs> like, that shit probably would have failed if they just flirted for nine seasons. We needed their relationship to go somewhere. I was invested in their relationship. <laughs> I laughed at that show, but I wanted to see what happened to Jim and Pam. That's why I was doing it, right? There's stages to a romantic relationship. Um, a couple flirt for a couple seasons, then they date on and off, then they say, I love you, then they get engaged, oftentimes they move in together, then they get married, then they have kids, and it follows the exact same pattern in every show, and yet I keep watching it. Darby and I just watched back from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, it's like textbook sitcom relationship, but it's the same thing in The Office or A New Girl, they all follow the same pattern. We know what the next step in a romantic relationship is. As soon as they say, I love you, I'm like, okay, here's what's going to happen next. It's going to be either in a couple episodes or a couple seasons, this is going to happen. We know what the next step is. But if we're honest, I'm not always sure that we know what the next step in our relationship with Jesus looks like. So today, before we take communion, I want you to think about where am I in my relationship with Jesus? You might say, I'm at the flirting stage. I'm a seeker, I'm a skeptic, I'm just checking things out. That's okay. Like, can you imagine if, like, episode one of The Office, Jim and Tam would have been like, let's get married. We would have been like, what? Like, that's not right. You need some time to get to know each other, to check things out. Um, maybe you say, okay, I'm at the dating stage. I'm exploring Jesus' teachings. I'm trying them out. I'm getting to know him, getting to know what he's about. Maybe you're like, I'm ready to take this to the next level. I'm ready to be baptized, to get engaged, as it were, to say like, hey, I belong to Jesus. I'm his. I'm part of his team. I'm siding with Jesus. Maybe you're ready to get married, as it were, and you say, I'm a Christian now. I'm going to start practicing the teachings of Jesus. I'm all in. Um, and then maybe you're at the stage in sitcoms where they have kids, and you're ready to share what you've learned with other People around the world, throughout history, have felt like Jesus is worth laying down his life for. Do we? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life and your death, your resurrection, your ascension. Thank you that we can be students of how you live and love. Um, God, forgive me for so often settling for something small and shallow instead of being willing to just give you everything. To say that you're worth it. God, there's people out there all different stages of relationship with you. Will you just help them to know clearly what stage they're at? 
and help them to know that you're trustworthy and that you're good and that you're worth giving everything for. Help them to move from whatever stage they're at to the next stage at the right time. And Lord, I pray that you will be with them and for them. And just let them know that you love them. I pray this in the name.